Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 1 Fear and Confidence, The Mercy of God We have just considered the rigors of divine justice in the other life. They are terrific, and it is impossible to think of them without trembling. That fire, enkindled by divine justice, whose excruciating pains, compared with all the penances of the saints, all the sufferings of the martyrs put together, are as nothing. Who is there that thinks that he will be able to look upon them and not shudder from very fear? This fear is solitary and conformable to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Our Divine Master desires that we should fear, and that we should fear not only hell, but also purgatory which is a sort of mitigated hell. It is to inspire us with the holy fear that he shows us the dungeons of the Supreme Judge, whence we shall not depart until we have paid the last farthing. We may say of the fire of purgatory, that which is said of hell fire, Fear ye not them that kill the body, and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can cast both soul and body into hell. Matthew 10.28 Yet it is not the intention of our Lord that we should have an excessive and barren fear, a fear which tortures and discourages, a gloomy fear without confidence. No, he wishes that our fear should be tempered with great trust in his mercy. He desired that we should fear evil, in order to prevent and avoid it. He desires that the thought of those avenging flames should stimulate us to a fervor in his service and cause us to expiate our faults in this world rather than in the other. Better is it to purge away our sins and cut off our vices now, says the author of the invitation, than to keep them for purgation hereafter. Moreover, if notwithstanding our endeavors to live well and to satisfy for our sins in this world, we have well-grounded fears that we shall have to go undergo a purgatory, we must look forward to that contingency with unbounded confidence in God, who never fails to console those whom he has purified by sufferings. Now, to give our fear this practical character, this counterpoise of confidence, after having contemplated purgatory and all the rigor of its pains, you must consider it under another aspect from a different point of view, that of the mercy of God, which shines forth therein no less than his justice. If God reserves terrible chastisements in the other life for the least faults, he does not inflict them without, at the same time, tempering them with clemency and nothing showing better the admirable harmony of the divine perfection than purgatory, because the most severe justice is there exercised, together with the most ineffable mercy. If our Lord chastises those souls that are dear to him, it is in his love, according to the words, Such as I love, I rebuke and chastise. With one hand he strikes, with the other he heals. He offers mercy and redemption and abundance. Psalm 129 The infinite mercy of our Heavenly Father must be the firm foundation of our confidence, and after the example of the saints, we must keep it always before our eyes. 
The saints never lost sight of it, and it was for this reason that the fear of purgatory never deprived them of their peace and joy of the Holy Ghost. St. Ledwina, who so well knew the frightful severity of expiatory suffering, was animated with the spirit of confidence and endeavored to inspire others with the same. One time she received a visit from a pious priest while he was seated at her bedside. Together with the other virtuous persons, the conversation turned on the sufferings of the other life. Seeing in the hands of a woman a vase filled with grains of mustard seed, the priest took occasion to remark that he trembled when thinking of the fire of purgatory. Nevertheless, he added, I should be satisfied to go there for as many years as there are grains of seeds in this vase. Then at least I should be certain of my salvation. What do you say, Father? replied the saint. Why so little confidence in the mercy of God? Ah, uh, if you had better knowledge of what purgatory is, or what frightful torments are there endured. Let purgatory be what it may, he replied. It persists in what I say. Sometime after, this priest died, and the same persons who had been present during this conversation with St. Ledwina, questioning the saint, to this condition of the other world, she replied, The deceased is well off, on account of his virtuous life, but would it be better for him if he had more confidence in the passion of Jesus Christ, and if he had taken a milder view of the subject of purgatory? And what consists those lack of confidence which met the disapproval of our saint? In the opinion which the good priest had, that it is almost impossibly saved, and that we shall enter heaven only after having undergone innumerable years of torture. This idea is erroneous and contrary to the Christian confidence. Our Savior came to bring peace to men of good will and to oppose upon them, as a condition of our salvation, a yoke which is sweet and a burden which is not heavy. Therefore, let your will be good, and you will find peace. You will see all difficulties and terrors vanish. Goodwill, that is everything. Be of goodwill, submit to the will of God, place his holy law above all else, serve the Lord with all your heart, and he will give you such powerful assistance that you will enter paradise with an astonishing felicity. I could never have believed, you will say, that it is so easy to enter heaven. Again, I repeat, to effect in us the wonder of mercy, God asks on our part an upright heart, a good will. Good will consists, properly speaking, in submitting and conforming our will to that of God, who is the rule of all good will, and this good will attains its highest perfection when we embrace the divine will as the sovereign good. Even then, when it opposed the greatest sacrifices, the most acute sufferings. O oh, admirable state, the soul thus disposed seems to lose the sensation of pain, and thus becomes the soul animated with the spirit of love. And, as St. Augustine says, when we love, we suffer not, or, if we suffer, we love the suffering. 
Venerable Claude de la Cambriere of the Society of Jesus possessed this loving heart, and in his retreat spirituality, he thus expresses his sentiments. We must not cease to expiate the past disorders of our life by penance, but it must be done without anxiety, because worse than that can befall us. When our will is good and we are submissive and obedient, it is to be sent for a long time to purgatory, and we may say with good reason that this is a great evil. I do not fear purgatory. Of hell I will not speak, for I should wrong the mercy of God by having the least fear of hell, although I have merited it more than all the demons together. Purgatory I do not fear. I wish I had not deserved it, since I could not do so without displeasing God. But as I have merited to go there, I am delighted to go and satisfy his justice in the most rigorous manner it is possible to imagine, and that even to the day of judgment. I know that the torments there endured are horrible, but I know there they honor God, and cannot prove an injury to the souls, that there we are certain never to oppose the will of God, that we shall never resent his severity, that we shall love the rigors of his justice, and await with patience until all be entirely appeased. Therefore I have given with my whole heart all my satisfactions for the souls in purgatory, and even bequeathed to others all the suffrages which shall be offered for me after my death, in order that God may be glorified in paradise by souls who have merited to be raised to a higher degree of glory than myself. Behold to what excess of charity the love of God and our neighbor transports us when it has once taken a possession of the heart, it transforms, transfigures, suffering in such a manner that all its bitterness is changed into sweetness. When thou shalt arrive thus far, the tribulation shall be sweet to thee, and thus shall relish it for the love of Christ. Then think that it is well with thee, for thou hast found a paradise upon earth. Imitation of Christ let us therefore have great love for God, great charity, and we shall have little fear of purgatory. The Holy Ghost bears testimony in the depths of our heart that, being children of God, we have no need to dread the chastisements of a father. Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 2 Confidence, Mercy of God Towards Souls it is true that all have not attained this high degree of charity, but there is no one that cannot have confidence in the divine mercy. This mercy is infinite. It imparts peace to all souls that keep it constantly before their eyes and confide therein. Now the mercy of God is exercised with regard to purgatory in a threefold manner. First, in consoling the souls. Second, in mitigating their sufferings. Third, in giving to ourselves a thousand means of avoiding those penal fires. In the first place, God consoles the souls in purgatory. He himself consoles them. He also consoles them through the Blessed Virgin and through the holy angels. He consoles the souls, inspiring them by a high degree of faith, hope, and divine love. 
virtues which produce in them conformity to the divine will, resignation, and the most perfect patience. God, says St. Catherine of Genoa, inspires the souls in purgatory with so ardent a movement of devoted love that it would be sufficient to annihilate her were she not immortal. Illumined and inflamed by that pure charity, the more she loves God, the more she detests the least stain that displeases him, the least hindrance that prevents her union with him. Thus, if she could find another purgatory more terrible than the one that she is condemned, that soul would plunge herself therein, impelled by the impetuosity of the love which exists between God and herself, in order that she might be sooner delivered from all that separates her from the sovereign God. These souls, says again the same saint, are intimately united to the will of God, and so completely transformed into it that they are always satisfied with its holy ordinances. The souls in purgatory have no choice of their own. They can no longer will anything than what God wills. They receive with perfect submission all that God gives them, and neither pleasure nor contentment nor pain can ever again make them think of themselves. St. Magdalene de Pazzi, after the death of one of her brothers, having gone to the choir to offer prayers for him, saw his soul a prey to intense sufferings. Touched with compassion, she melted into tears and cried out in a piteous voice, Brother, miserable and blessed at the same time, O soul afflicted and yet contented, these pains are intolerable and yet they are endured. Why are they not understood by those here below who have not the courage to carry their cross? Whilst you are in this world, my dear brother, you would not listen to my voice, and now you desire ardently that I should hear you. O God, equally just and merciful, comfort this brother who has served you from his infancy. Have regard to your clemency, I beseech you, and make use of your great mercy in his behalf. O God, most just, if he has not always been attentive to please you, at least he has not despised those who make profession of serving you with fidelity. The day on which she has that wonderful ecstasy, during which she visited the different prisons of purgatory, seeing again that soul of her brother, she said to him, Poor soul, how you suffer, and nevertheless you rejoice. You burn and you are satisfied, because you know well that these sufferings must lead you to a great and unspeakable felicity. How happy shall I be, should I never have to endure a greater suffering? Remain here, my dear brother, and complete your purification in peace. Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 3 Consolations of the Souls This contentment in the midst of the most intense sufferings cannot be explained otherwise than by the divine consolations which the Holy Ghost infuses into the souls in purgatory. This divine spirit, by means of faith, hope, and charity, puts them in the disposition of a sick person who has to submit to a very painful treatment but the effect of which is to restore him to perfect health. This sick person suffers, but he loves the solitary suffering. 
the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, gives a similar contentment to the holy souls. Of this we have striking examples in Peter Miles, raised from the dead by St. Stanislaus of Kharkov, who preferred to return to purgatory rather than to live again upon earth. The celebrated miracle of this resurrection happened in 1070, and is thus related in the Acta Centaurum on May 7th. St. Stanislaus was a bishop of Kharkov when the Duke Bolsulas II governed Poland. He did not neglect to remind this prince of his duties, who scandalously violated them before all his people. Bolsulas was irritated by the holy liberty of the prelate, and to revenge himself he excited against him the heirs of a certain Peter Miles, who had tried three years previously after having sold a piece of ground to the church of Kharkov. The heirs accused the saint of having usurped the ground without having paid the owner. Stanislaus declared that he had paid for the land, but as the witnesses who should have defended him had been either bribed or intimidated, he was denounced as a usurper of the property of another and condemned to make restitution. Then, seeing that he had nothing to expect from human justice, he raised his heart to God and received a sudden inspiration. He asked for a delay of three days, promising to make Peter Miles appear in person, that he might testify to legal purchase and payment of the lot. They were granted to him in scorn. The saint fasted, watched, and prayed God to take up the defense of his cause. The third day after having celebrated Mass, he went out accompanied by his clergy and many of the faithful to the place where Peter had been interred. By his orders, the grave was open. It contained nothing but bones. He touched them with his crozier, and in the name of him who is the resurrection and the life, he commanded the dead man to rise. Suddenly the bones became united, were covered with flesh, and in the sight of the stupefied people, the dead man was seen to take the bishop by the hand and walk towards the tribunal. Bolisas, who his court and his immense crowd of people were awaiting the result of the most lively expectation. Behold, Peter, said the saint of Bolsulas, he comes, prince, to give testimony before you. Interrogate him, he will answer you. It is possible to depict the stupefaction of the duke, of his counselors, and of the whole courts of people. Peter affirmed that he had been paid for the ground, and then turned towards his heirs. He reproached them for having accused this pious prelate against a right of justice. Then he exhorted them to do penance for so grievous a sin. It was thus that iniquity, which believed itself already sure of success, was confounded. Now comes a circumstance which concerns our subject, and to which we wish to refer. Wishing to complete this great miracle of the glory of God, Stanislaus proposed to the deceased that, if he desired to live a few years longer, he would obtain for him this favor from God. Peter replied that he had no such desire. He was in purgatory, but he would rather return thereto immediately and endure its pains then expose himself to damnation in this terrestrial life. 
He entreated the saint only to beg God to shorten the time of his sufferings, that he might the sooner enter the abode of the blessed. After that, accompanied by the bishop and a vast multitude, Peter returned to his grave, laid himself down, his body fell to pieces, and his bones resumed to the same state in which they had first been found. We have reason to believe that this saint soon obtained the deliverance of his soul. That which is the most remarkable in this example, and which should most attract our attention, is that a soul from purgatory, after having experienced the most excruciating torments, prefers the state of suffering to the life of this world. And the reason which he gives for this preference is that in this mortal life we are exposed to the dangers of being lost and incurring eternal damnation. Purgatory, Chapter 4 Location of Purgatory Doctrine of Theologians Catechism of the Council of Trent and St. Thomas Aquinas Although faith tells us nothing definite regarding the location of purgatory, the most common opinion, which most accords with the language of Scripture, and which is the most generally received among theologians, places it in the bowels of the earth, not far from hell of the reprobates. Theologians are almost unanimous, says Bellarmine, in teaching that purgatory, at least the ordinary place of expiation, is situated in the interior of the earth, that the souls in purgatory and the reprobate are in the same subterranean space, in the deep abyss which the scripture calls hell. When we say in the Apostles' Creed that after his death Jesus Christ descended into hell, the name hell, says the Catechism of the Council of Trent, signifies those hidden places where the souls are detained, which have not yet reached eternal beatitude. But these prisons are of different kinds. One is dark and gloomy dungeon, where the damned are continually tormented by evil spirits, and by a fire which is never extinguished. This place, which is hell properly so-called, is also named Gehenna and Abyss. There is another hell which contains the fire of purgatory. There the souls of the just suffer a certain time, that they may become entirely purified before being admitted to their heavenly fatherland, which nothing defiled can ever enter. A third hell was that into which the souls of the saints who died before the coming of Jesus Christ were received, and in which they enjoyed peaceful repose, exempt from pain, consoled and sustained by the hope of their redemption. They were those souls who awaited Jesus Christ in Abraham's bosom, and which were delivered when Christ descended into hell. Our Savior suddenly diffused among them a brilliant light, which filled them with infinite joy and gave them a sovereign beatitude, which is the vision of God. Then was fulfilled the promise of Jesus to the good thief, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. A very probable opinion, says St. Thomas, and one which, moreover, corresponds with the words of the saints in particular revelation, is that purgatory has a double place for expiation, 
The first will be destined for the generality of souls, and is situated below, near to hell. The second will be for particular cases, and it is from thence that so many apparitions occur. The Holy Doctor admits, then like so many others who share his opinions, that sometimes divine justice assigns a special place of purification to certain souls, and even permits them to appear either to instruct the living or to procure for the departed the suffrages for which they stand in need. Sometimes also for other motives worthy of the wisdom and mercy of God. Since we are not writing a controversial treatise, we add neither proofs nor refutations. These can be seen in authors such as Suarez and Bellarmine. We will content ourselves by remarking that the opinion concerning a subterranean hell has nothing to fear from modern science. A science purely natural is incompetent in questions which belong, as this one does, to the supernatural order. Moreover, we know that spirits may be in a place occupied by bodies, as though these bodies did not exist. Whatever, then, the interior of the earth may be, whether it may be entirely of fire, as geologists commonly say, or whether it be in any other state, there is nothing to prevent its serving as a subjourn of spirits, even of spirits clothed with a risen body. The Apostle St. Paul teaches us that the air is filled with the multitude of evil spirits. We have to combat, says he, against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. Ephesians 6.12 On the other hand, we know that the good angels, who protect us, are no less numerous in the world. Now, if angels and other spirits can inhabit our atmosphere, whilst the physical body is not in the least degree changed, why cannot the souls of the dead dwell in the bosom of the earth? Purgatory, Part 2 Chapter 5. Consolations of Souls. The Blessed Virgin. The souls in purgatory receive also great consolation from the Blessed Virgin. Is she not the consolation of the afflicted? And what affliction can be compared to that of the poor souls? Is she the mother of mercy? And is it not towards these suffering souls that she must show all the mercy of her heart? We must not, therefore, be astonished that in the revelations of St. Bridget, the Queen of Heaven gives herself the beautiful name of Mother of the Souls in Purgatory. I am, she said to the saint, the mother of all those who are in the place of expiation. My prayers mitigate their chastisements, which are inflicted upon them for their faults. On October 25, 1604, in the College of Society of Jesus at Cumbria, Father Jerome Valho died in the odor of sanctity at the age of 50 years. This admirable and humble servant of God felt a lively apprehension of the sufferings of purgatory. Neither the cruel machinations which he inflicted upon himself several times every day, not counting those prompted each week by the remembrance of the Passion, nor the six hours which he devoted morning and evening to the meditation of the holy subject, seemed sufficient in his estimation to shield him from the chastisement which he imagined awaited him after his death. 
But one day the Queen of Heaven, to whom he had a tender devotion, condescended herself to console her servant by the simple assurance that she was a mother of mercy to her dear children in purgatory as well of those upon the earth. Seeking later to spread this consoling doctrine, the holy man accidentally let fall, in the ardor of his discourse, these words, She told me this herself. It is related that a great servant of Mary, Blessed Rainier of Chiteau, trembled at the thought of his sins and the terrible justice of God after death. In his fear addressing himself to his great protectress, who calls herself Mother of Mercy, he was wrapped in spirit and saw the Mother of God supplicating her son in his favor. My son, she said, deal mercifully with him in his purgatory because he humbly repents of his sins. My mother replied, Jesus, I place this cause in your hands, which meant to say, be it done to your quiet according to your desire. Blessed Rainier understood with unutterable joy that Mary had obtained his exemption from purgatory. Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 6 Consolations of Purgatory The Blessed Virgin Mary, Privilege of Saturday it is especially on certain days that the Queen of Heaven exercises her mercy in purgatory. These privileged days are, first, all Saturdays, then the different feasts of the Blessed Virgin, which thus become as festivals in purgatory. We see the revelations of the saints that on Saturday, the day especially consecrated to the Blessed Virgin, the sweet Mother of Mercy descends into the dungeons of purgatory to visit and console her devoted servants. Then, according to her pious belief of the faithful, she delivers those souls who have worn the holy scapular, enjoy the Sabbatine privilege, and afterwards gives relief and consolation to the other souls who had been particularly devout to her. A witness to this was the venerable Sister Paula of St. Teresa, a Dominican religious of the convent of St. Catherine in Naples. Being wrapped in ecstasy one day and transported in spirit into purgatory, she was quite surprised to find it transformed into a paradise of delights, illuminated by a bright light instead of the darkness which at other times prevailed. While she was wondering what could be the cause of this change, she perceived the Queen of Heaven surrounded by a multitude of angels, to whom she gave orders to liberate those souls who had honored her in a special manner and conduct them to heaven. If such takes place on an ordinary Saturday, we can scarcely doubt that the same occurs the feast days consecrated to the Mother of God. Among her festivals, that of the glorious Assumption of Mary seems to be the chief day of deliverance. St. Peter Damien tells us that each year, on the day of the Assumption, the Blessed Virgin delivers several thousands of souls. The following account of a miraculous vision illustrates the subject. It is a pious custom, he says, which exists among the people of Rome to visit the churches, carrying a candle in hand, during the night preceding the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady. Now it happened that a person of rank, 
and being on her knees in the basilica of the Araceli in the capital, saw before her, prostrate in prayer, another lady, her godmother, who had died several months previous. Surprised and not being able to believe her eyes, she wished to solve the mystery, and for this purpose placed herself near the door of the church. As soon as she saw the lady go out, she took her by the hand and drew her aside. Are you not, she said to her, my godmother who held me at the baptismal font? Yes, replied the apparition immediately. It is I. And how comes that I find you among the living, since you have been dead more than a year? Until this day I have been plunged in a dreadful fire on account of many sins of vanity which I committed in my youth. But during this great solemnity, the Queen of Heaven descended into the midst of the purgatorial flames and delivered me, together with a large number of other souls, that we might enter heaven on the feast of her assumption. She exercises this great act of clemency each year, and on this occasion alone the number of those whom she has delivered equals the population of Rome. Seeing that her daughter remained stupefied and seemed still to doubt the evidence of her sense, the apparition added, In proof of the truth of my words, know that you yourself will die in a year, hence, on the Feast of the Assumption. If you outlive that period, believe that this was an illusion. St. Peter Damien concluded this recital by saying that the young lady passed one year in the exercise of good works, in order to prepare herself to appear before God, the year following, on the vigil of the Assumption, she fell sick and died on the day of the feast itself, as had been predicted. The feast of the Assumption is, then, the greatest day of Mary's mercy towards the poor souls. She delights to introduce her children into the glory of heaven on the anniversary of the day on which she herself entered its blessed portals. This pious belief, adds Father Louvet, is founded on a great number of particular revelations. It is for this reason that in Rome, the Church of St. Mary in Monteiro, which is the center of the Arch Confraternity for the Sufferings for the Dead, is dedicated under the title of the Assumption. Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 7 Consolations of Purgatory, The Angels Besides the consolations which souls receive from the Blessed Virgin, they are also assisted and consoled by their holy angels, and especially by their guardian angels. The doctors of the Church teach that the tutelary mission of the guardian angels terminates on the entrance of their clients into Paradise. If at the moment of death, a soul in the state of grace is not yet worthy to see the face of the Most High. The angel guardian conducts it into the place of expiation, and there remains with her to produce for her all the assistance and consolations in his power. It is an opinion common among the holy doctors, says Father Rossangioli, that God, who will one day send forth his angels to assemble the elect, also sends them from time to time into purgatory, there to visit and console the suffering souls. No doubt there cannot be any relief more precious than the sight of the inhabitants of heaven. 
that blessed abode whether they will one day go to enjoy its glorious and eternal felicity. The revelations of St. Bridget are filled with examples of this nature, and the lives of several of the saints also furnish a great number. Venerable Sister Paula of St. Teresa, of whom we have already spoken above, had an extraordinary devotion towards the church suffering, for which she was rewarded here below with miraculous visions. One day, while saying a fervent prayer for this intention, she was transported in spirit into purgatory, where she saw a great number of souls plunged in flames. Close to them she saw our Savior, attended by his holy angels, who pointed out, one after the other, several souls which he desired to take to heaven, whether they ascended in transports of unutterable joy. At this sight, the servant of God, addressing herself to the divine spouse, and said to him, O Jesus, why this choice among such a vast multitude? I have released, he designed to reply, to those who during life performed great acts of charity and mercy, and who have merited that I should fill my promise in their regard. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In the life of the servant of God, Peter de Basto, we find an example which shows how the holy angels, even whilst they are watching over us upon earth, interest themselves in behalf of the souls in purgatory. And since we have mentioned the name of Brother de Basto, we cannot resist the desire to make known this admirable religious to our readers. His history is as interesting as it is edifying. Peter de Basto, brother coadjutor of the Society of Jesus, in whom his biographer calls the Alphonsus Rodriguez of Alabar, died in the odor of sanctity of Cochin, March 1, 1645. He was born in Portugal of the illustrious family of Machado, united in blood to all the nobility of the whole province between the Duraro and the Minho. The Dukes of Passerano and Hixcar were among the numbers of his relatives, and the world held out to him a career of the most brilliant prospects, but God had reserved for him for himself and had endowed him with the most marvelous spiritual gifts. While still a very little child, when taken to the church, he prayed for the Blessed Sacrament with the fervor of an angel. He believed that all the people saw as he did, with the eyes of the body, the legions of the celestial spirits in adoration near the altar and the tabernacle. And from that time forward, the Savior, hidden under the Eucharistic veil, became by excellence the center of his affections, and by the innumerable prodigies which characterize his long and holy life. It was there that, later, in the Divine Son, he discovered without veils the future and its most unforeseen details. It was there also that God showed him the mysterious symbols of the ladder of gold which united heaven and earth, supported by the tabernacle, and of the lily of purity shooting forth its roots, and drawing its nourishment from the flower of the wheat, and of the elect, and the wine which alone can bring forth virgins. Towards his seventeenth year, 
thanks to that purity of heart and that strength of which the sacrament of the Eucharist was for him the inexhaustible source, Peter made at Lisbon a vow of perpetual chastity at the feet of Our Lady of Perpetual Succor. He did not yet, however, think of quitting the world, and some days later embarked for the Indies, and for two years followed the military profession. But at the end of that time, on the point of perishing by shipwreck, being tossed about at the mercy of the waves for five entire days, supported and saved by the Queen of Heaven and her Divine Son, who appeared to him, he promised to consecrate himself entirely to their service in the religious state for the remainder of his life. As soon as he returned to Goa, being then about nineteen years of age, he went and offered himself in the quality of a lay brother to the superiors of the Society of Jesus. Fearing that his name might procure for him some mark of distinction or esteem, he adopted henceforward that to the humble village where he had received baptism and was called simply Peter de Basto. It was a short time afterwards, during one of the trials of his novitiate, that this wonderful incident occurred, which is recorded in the annals of the society, which is so consoling for all the children of St. Ignatius. Brother Peter's novice master sent him on a pilgrimage with two young companions in the island of Salette, ordering them not to accept hospitality from any of the missionaries, but to beg from village to village for their daily bread and that night's lodging. One day, fatigued with their long journey, they met a humble family consisting of an old man, a young woman, and a little child who received them with great charity and pressed them to partake of a frugal repast. But at the moment of the departure, after having returned them a thousand thanks, when Peter de Basto, begging his host to tell them their names, wishing, no doubt, to recommend them to God, we are, replied the mother, the three founders of the Society of Jesus, and all these disappeared at the same instant. The whole religious life of this holy man until his death, that is to say, almost sixty-six years, was but a tissue of wondrous and extraordinary graces. But we must add that he merited them, and purchased them, that is to say, at the price of virtue, labors, and the most heroic sacrifices, charged by turns with care of the laundry, the kitchen, the door, and the college of Goa, of Tatakurin, of Carrillo, and of Chokin. Peter never sought to withdraw himself from the hardest labors, nor to reserve a little leisure time at the expense of his different offices that he might enjoy the delights of prayer. Serious infirmities, the sole cause of which was excessive labor, were he said smilingly is the most pleasant distractions. Moreover, abandoned, so to speak, to the fury of the demon, the servant of God enjoyed scarcely any repose. These spirits of darkness appear to him under the most hideous forms. They often beat him severely, especially at that hour each night when it was his custom. He interrupted his sleep to go and pray before the Blessed Sacrament. 
One day, while traveling, his companions fled at the sound of a troop of formidable-looking men, horses, and elephants, who appeared approaching them with furious gestures. He alone remained calm, and when his companions expressed their astonishment that he had not manifested the least sign of fear, he replied, If God does not permit the demons to exercise their rage against us, what have we to fear? And if he gives them the permission, why then should we endeavor to escape their blows? He had only to invoke the Queen of Heaven, when she appeared immediately and put the infernal troops to flight. Often it seemed as though all was confusion, even to the very depths of his soul, and he found calm, peace, and victory only near his ordinary refuge, Jesus present in the Holy Eucharist. Loaded one day with outrages, which caused him some little disturbance, he prostrated himself at the foot of the altar and asked our divine Savior the gift of patience. When our Lord appeared to him covered with wounds, a purple mantle around his shoulders, a rope around his neck, a reed in his right hand, a crown of thorns upon his head. Then addressing himself to Peter, he said, See what the true Son of God has suffered to teach men how to suffer? But we have not touched the point which we wish to illustrate by this holy life. I mean to say, the devotion of Peter de Basto towards the souls in purgatory, a devotion encouraged and seconded by his good angel guardian, notwithstanding his numerous labors. He daily recited the rosary for the dead. One day, having forgotten it, he retired without having recited it. But scarcely had he fallen asleep when he was awakened by his angel. My son, says the heavenly spirit, the souls in purgatory await the benefit of your daily alms. Peter rose instantly to fulfill the duty of piety. Purgatory, Part 2, Chapter 8 Consolations of Purgatory, The Angels, The Saints in Heaven If the holy angels interest themselves in behalf of the souls in purgatory in general, it is easy to understand that they have particular zeal for those of their clients. In the convent of Vercelli, where Blessed Emilia, a Dominican religious, was prioress, it was a point of the rule never to drink between meals, unless with express permission of the superior. This permission the blessed prioress was not accustomed to accord. She advised her sisters to make that little sacrifice cheerfully in memory of the burning thirst which our Savior had endured for our salvation upon the cross. And to encourage them to do this, she suggested to them to confide those few drops of water to their guardian angels, that he might preserve them until the other life to temper the heat of purgatory. The following incident shows how agreeable this pious practice was to God. A sister named Cecilia Avangrada came one day to ask permission to refresh herself with a little water, for she was parched with thirst. My daughter, said the prioress, make this little sacrifice for the love of God, and in consideration of purgatory. Mother, this sacrifice is not little. I am dying of thirst, replied the good sister. Nevertheless, although somewhat grieved, 
she obeyed the advice of her superior. This double act of obedience and mortification was precious in the sight of God, and Sister Cecilia soon received its reward. A few weeks later she died, and after three days she appeared resplendent in glory to Mother Emilia. O oh, Mother, she said, how grateful I am to you. I was condemned to a long purgatory for having had too great an affection for my family. And behold, after two days, I saw my guardian angel enter my prison, holding in his hand the glass of water which you caused me to offer a sacrifice to my divine spouse. He poured the water upon the flames which were devouring me. They were extinguished immediately, and I am delivered. I take my flight into heaven, where my gratitude will never forget you. It is thus that the angels of God console the souls in purgatory. It may be here asked how the saints and blessed already crowned in heaven can assist them. It is certain, says Father Rosengali, and such is the teaching of all the masters in theology, such as St. Augustine and St. Thomas, that the saints are very powerful in the respect by way of supplication, but not by satisfaction. In other words, the saints in heaven may pray for the souls and thus obtain from divine mercy a diminution of their sufferings. But they cannot satisfy for them nor pay their debts to divine justice. That is a privilege which God reserves to the church militant. <laughs>